This is Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to the Friday morning break with John Gibbs. My guest this week is Rilla Rapa, Associate Professor and Deputy Director of Research in the Department of Education at Durham University. Rilla has written extensively and researched on educational discourse, Foucauldian analysis, and neoliberalism as an ideology and its influence on education, particularly higher education. I think you'll enjoy our discussion as we look at how these ideas, particularly the marketization of schools, has affected education in the UK. This is Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in at ttradio.org. Follow the hashtag TTRadio. Tune in with Teachers Talk Radio. And we're back with my guest this morning on Teachers Talk Radio, Friday morning, so nearly the weekend. And my guest, as I said before, is Rilla. And welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, John. It's it's great to be here today. Well, you know, as we talked before, or we communicated via email and so on beforehand, I've looked at quite a long list of your research as an academic. Of course, you've you publish lots of things, and I can see that one of the interests you have is principally from a focus on higher education, but something that interests me as well. After 38 years or so of teaching, and I'm now retired, looking back at what's happened to, as it were, the culture in which education sits. And one of the phrases that, I don't know when I first heard it really, neoliberalism, the, the idea of a, of, a, of a set of ideological kind of ideas that sits behind much of the, the last four, three or four decades. So it seems to me it's had a big effect on my school career. I think we'll talk about that. But uh, it's, a, it's a phrase I've heard a lot, but how would you describe what you think that phrase means? So neoliberalism, I think I completely agree with, with you that it's something that we kind of almost have, have all started to use and, and often perhaps even not really reflecting on what do we mean by it. And actually thinking back my own kind of, you know, how I got into looking into marketization of higher education and how I came across with the term neoliberalism. So that must have been like 10, 15 years ago. And especially wanting to understand what goes on in universities and so on. Um, neoliberalism as a term was quite abstract. It was something that we used theoretically, something that came from economic theory and, and something that political scientists and sociologists used to criticize and critique what goes on in our society and in the, in, our, in our economic market. So it was something that uh, we kind of needed to make sense of it, what goes on. So first of all, I think when we look at neoliberalism, then it is kind of the, um, the, the form of late capitalism. So what what's going on in our you know economic order and this kind of promotion of free markets, deregulation, um, having less state support to kind of our social life or economic life. So all of those things that we can see in terms terms of how um, our kind of political and economic society operates. And that's, I think, helpful in terms of thinking about the big picture, where we are at. So that was kind of the entrance into neoliberalism for me as well. But interestingly, however, I do think we have to actually think about what does neoliberalism do to us as, as individuals, as teachers, students, as, you know, partners, as friends, and so on. So I think for me, increasing neoliberalism as a mode of governance, 
So it's something much more than goes on out there, but it's something we actually enact and and kind of live by live our life by now, sadly. And that, uh, yeah. yeah, that is so interesting because I, I, when I my first experience, I don't know if I, when I first heard the term neoliberalism, I, I taught things later on where that term was used, but I remember Mrs. Thatcher winning the seventy nine mm-hmm. election, <laughs> and. Uh, my family were quite left-wing. Were, my dad was a trade unionist and socialist. And he said, this is good from a Marxist <laughs> perspective, he said, because uh, this is the sort of disruptive for Mrs. Yeah. Thatcher is going to break things yeah. up. And that's how you get progress towards a better society. So he's actually quite welcoming of that idea. And yet, and then when the terms like monetarism and so on yeah. got used and Milton Friedman, Chicago School. Mm. But it's only later on I've begun to realise, and it seemed to be a change in the atmosphere around us that something was a, was changing the schools I was teaching in. And I think from a lot of what you've said, you talked about marketization of education. I think I, I, you know, I, I, I suspect I really agree with that's what's, that's, that would be a neat description of what's happened. Is that yeah. your experience as well? Or is that how, yeah. how would you see that applied to education? Absolutely. Um, so I think what we can see is marketization of education rather than privatization of education. We can't say that, you know, that we're now turning all the schools and universities into private entities. But we see how schools and universities have, have been have entered into this market competition and need to kind of uh, cope with those market forces and competition and so on to actually survive, which is kind of bizarre to think about, that it's about the survival of schools and survival of universities through that market competition. So yes, we see, and, and obviously in higher education, we really can see the increase of tuition fees and, and so on, which which feeds into this whole idea of how we approach education more broadly. So yes, but going back to your point about Mrs. Thatcher, and I, I do think the kind of the idea, uh, the famous claim that she made that there is no such thing as society, that we are all individuals who, who need to compete and who have the responsibility um, for our own well-being, for our own success. And I think that's what we're now taking into education as well, that it's our own responsibility and it's parents' responsibility to make sure that their children have a good you know, educational outlook and will succeed and be competitive wherever they end up going. So it's this kind of ingrained mentality that we all need to think about our own self-interest in that sense. It's a kind of changed relationship with something that you took for granted as being quite a benign sort of relationship, the educator, the school, you know, yeah. part of your community as it might have been viewed once. And now, very much at something like more like the supermarket, <laughs> something yeah. in which you you are responsible for the choices you make. You have to be the savvy consumer. You have to know what, you know, to choose the good school to, to make sure your kids go through it in the right way. And to and increasingly, one of the big changes I've noticed is the, the purchasing of, um, of private tutoring. And private tutoring really does work. I mean, it, you know, get someone online or in the house teaching your kid maths they make dramatic dramatic effect but of course it's it's absolutely privatizing in its own way as it were (laughs) the education system exactly and who wouldn't want best for their children and if you have resources to invest into your children then that seems like a logical thing to do but obviously we have to think particularly those of us who work in education sector what happens to those who cannot the families that can't afford competing and that's where we can see those enormous educational inequalities playing out but also i think you know when we speak about the mental health crisis and so on young people being um you know kind of struggling and having poor mental health i do think it's also the 
experience of this incredible pressure that we actually as a society, but also little family units or even schools as, as communities put on those young people. Hmm. Something you said earlier, you talked about the, the kind of survival. Now, one of the views I would have taken of of schools and universities, but particularly universities, really, was that they were very secure. That was almost what they were defined as being. There were things like tenure. There was an idea of, of them being islands of security where that was their purpose, where things could be said that couldn't necessarily be, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily want to hear, and things could be done in directions that people had the freedom to pursue that. So freedom and security seem to be cornerstones of higher education as as I, as I would have idealistically you know, <laughs> hoped it would be. And you say that that, that that is not the case so much. Yes, I suppose my personal view is that within the, the UK higher education, at least, we still have quite a lot of academic freedom when it comes to a scholarship and research that nobody's ever told me not to research marketization of higher education or not to critique education policy. Nobody's ever told me that. And I don't think that we are heading the directions where where that would become uh, a lived experience. But I do think the insecurities that we experience in terms of um, especially early career colleagues coming in who have less job security, also all of us who are kind of um, subject and countable to good student satisfaction and so on, or need to think about our own career aspirations and promotions and so on, that that makes us quite insecure and cautious of what we do. So I do think that probably is those wider pressures that shape our work. And I'm also thinking about teachers at school, the, the culture of performativity and constant measurement, audit culture and so on, and how that shapes what we actually feel comfortable of doing in the classroom and what kind of education and, and intellectual curiosity and creativity we can provide. So I think those kinds of contexts, rather than being directly taught, um, maybe there are differences at school, and that would be interesting to hear from teachers, of course, in terms of having clear national curriculum and so on to to be guided by. But in universities, we have quite a lot of freedom in terms of curricular content and and research we do, um, at least this moment of time, as I I experience it. But in in all, all through education, as you rightly said, a sense of being watched, <laughs> which which increasingly, you know, teaching used to be described as a lonely profession. You close the door and you, you, you've got the kids. I don't think it's so lonely anymore. There's, a, there's definitely a someone watch over your shoulder, whether they actually are there or you just suspect they're there. And that's exactly what neoliberalism does to us, that we start watching. We don't actually need somebody else to watch for us or watch over us, that we are the best, you know, monitors our own behavior because we ingrain. It's this kind of sense of panopticon that that you feel that constantly somebody is watching over you. But actually, you're really good at monitoring your own behavior and even more so than any line manager could ever demand from you, because there is this fear of doing something wrong that will backfire. And we've seen cases where things backfire really badly, that yes, certain you know, courses don't recruit or students are very unhappy with what we do and so on. So I think there is this sense of, yes, constantly needing to watch what you're doing for your own job security to a certain extent and and the, and the kind of the security or the sustainability of the work we do in that sense. And that has, I do agree, ultimately changed um, of who we are in education sector. Where did, in a way, we've talked about, I, I mean, I think of 
I'm not the first to think of that, of course, but Mrs. Thatcher in 1979 and Ronald Reagan, some sort of shift away from the post-war consensus and you know, something changed there. Mm -hmm. But monitoring students, giving them grades, that goes way, that goes back to sort of the 18th century and that, that idea that, you know, you because one of the effects of education, if, as soon as you start grading students, is going to be that they are, as you rightly said, going to think of themselves as that great. I, I failed at school. I succeeded at school. I'm good at this. I'm not good at this. Uh, and that will carry them into life. People will tell you. I've met lots of people over the years who say to me, oh, I wasn't very good at school. And they're in their 30s or 40s. I think, well, that's a terrible thing to have left you with. <laughs> you know, or I don't do maths. I never was good at that. But you, you remember your 16-year-old self. So grading changes everything in our relationship with not just education, but our understanding of ourselves and our own identity. Grading is a label that we carry with us for the rest of our lives. But it's also been the grading of students has been co-opted by neoliberalism as a means of judging people, individuals, schools, in terms of a kind of market success. I have a, I've had a long-lasting interest in assessment and grading, and actually from a sociological perspective. And looking back into, you're absolutely right that assessment has been around for a very long time. And if you look into kind of genealogy of assessment or the history of assessment, it's very much in relation to disciplining students, kind of getting them to comply with whatever we needed education to do. But interesting, what I have argued in some of the work that I've done is look into how does the same process now discipline us as teachers and 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 educators because we now feel that we are accountable for marks that students get, receive so in some ways whatever students receive at ccc or a levels we feel that we are somehow accountable to that as well so who does assessment discipline now i think the power relations that operate through assessment process have become so complex that we are all very fearful of assessment. So it's not just that the, the teacher has the authority and power to make judgments about students' performance. Now feel, we feel that it's our own fault if somebody doesn't do very well and the parents will come back to us and so on. So I think this kind of element, but there's another side to that within this kind of neoliberal context is that the ultimate belief that we cannot improve what we cannot measure. So this idea of that we need constantly hard numeric evidence to be able to say that this this is what works or this is the, this is what doesn't work. This is what you're doing well and this is what you don't do well. And I think that has put enormous focus on assessment in a way of grading and so on. And also we grade now everybody else's practice in a way that how good you are at, as a teacher or academic, it's kind of we have those numbers attached to us. We're walking around and we have some form of rating attached to us that we all kind of symbolically understand how it works. So in that sense, it's quite a horrific world if you think about uh, <laughs> the is. expectations we need to live up to. It is It is quite horrific, really. And that, that um data-driven, you know, the, the fact that you can record more, so you do record more. And the more you record, the more in the sense that you live in a world of, of recorded things. You know, that, that becomes the environment we, we, we live in. I mean, I always think, it, well, I always think, I just maybe thought a moment ago, that exams are like the kind of, you know, the tail that wags the dog. As soon as you place some form of assessment in any, in any system, of, in any process, if that process you're engaged in is no longer benign, and it becomes driven by the end result. And students are very, very clever and very good observing the truth of this. So, I, so one thing I noticed over the years was students increasingly asking me the question, is this in the exam? <laughs> As I would go off on some you know, digression. 
And I say, well, not strictly speaking, but it seems quite interesting nonetheless. But now he's in an exam. And I would love to be able to classroom and and say to my students that try really hard not to learn anything. Try, see what happens if you try not to do any work, not to learn anything. And I think we could actually see quite a lot of meaningful learning going on if you would take off the pressure of needing to to learn the right thing. Um, So I think it is interesting. But in relation to that, and I'm sure you've been discussing that on the show, um, is in terms of what happened during the pandemic and in terms of um, those A-level students who couldn't take exams and and we had those algorithms and so on to actually kind of indicate the levels of performance and and anecdotally I have met quite a few students who have then thought at universities um, or in in Durham here um, who have kind of then um, highlighted how they feel quite fearful that whether they actually deserve the whatever um, outcome they got and how that is related to confidence as well so I think it's quite interesting how we sometimes almost want to have that mark attached to us if it was a good one because it's some form of confirmation that we actually deserve to be where we are and I've always tried to tell students that you know uh, your achievement is much more than any mark could indicate that you're clearly here because you're capable of doing good things and, and I think there's a quite a lot of work to be done there thinking about how do we understand our own value and abilities beyond whatever the the mark uh, indicated. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support, protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at adapt.org.uk today. Adapt. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. You are listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week, Dr. Rilla Rapa, Associate Professor in Education at Durham University. We are discussing how neoliberalism has influenced schools in this country, and so much more. exams are really exams well I have an even more depressing thought actually that schools really aren't very nice places <laughs> but I didn't think much about that but exams are really terrible <laughs> of all kinds really that that you're right that moment of that marker in time that, that fixes you even though you may uh, whatever speed of development you have in life or you may be at your cleverest in your second year of university but if your A-level results are a bit iffy even though you're 16 years old you're terribly worried about being a teenager and the things that went with that and so on. So it's it's really quite a blunt 
what was stupid system really i just, I just can't think that human beings of the future surely you know um we might get on to that to, to different forms of assessment maybe ai or something i don't know but yeah so that but, will be interesting to follow yeah, to see yeah, how it goes in a way of do we go back to very traditional ways of assessing exams that everybody needs to be in the same room with a paper and a pen because we can't trust anybody to go outside the room to take their uh, assessments or uh, where do we go or maybe we do something creative that actually would work alongside with whatever the technology um, yeah. allows oh. us to do yeah uh, it'd be lovely to think we would be creative I mean, when I when when um, ChatGPT sort of exploded a few months ago, and people said, "Wow, this is this is this is really bad," because students will be doing all sorts of coursework and things. I thought, yes, well, again, it's that old Marxist thing about Mrs. Thatcher being disruptive. This is disruptive, you know. But it's disruptive to a system that isn't very good. Change it. Think of think. Be creative. But uh, you know, when you bank on human beings being creative or retreating back to the past, I suspect you're right. It'll be, it'll be. Let's go back to pens. Because yeah. we know that, <laughs> and that's that goes alongside with this neoliberal logic that promotes low trust, that we can't trust anybody to do the right thing. So this is the thing that you know we can't trust students to to be creative outside of the classroom. We should watch over them and see you know that they certainly do what we're meant to do. We can't trust teachers to use the AI in the best possible way. So so that kind of the environment we live in, uh, which I think is quite sad as well, that uh, that we do have very low trust towards other people, but also towards oneself in a way. Absolutely. That is, I would say, one of my most emphatically lived experiences in a career in teaching was not only the the uh, intrusion of, of uh, monitoring and observation and data collection and so on on, on myself and, and students, that, that, that watcher behind me at all times. But there was also the sense in which there was a, a, sus, a suspicion always, I mean, a growing suspicion that teachers were some sort of problem and schools themselves were some sort of problem. They either were failing in some way or not doing something in some way, not solving this problem in society. And within that, the teacher was a particular problem in which you needed to introduce some mechanism for rooting out the bad ones, improving the failing ones. Um, so that, that, that sense of, and, and that I think applied generally to public services, a kind of sense in which all public services were failing to deliver something. We weren't dead certain what that was, but there was a, a sense of failure. Yes, and I often think about it in terms of that, why do we have this opposition, oppositional relationship that, that we're very much promoted to see students as, um, you know, they have particular needs and they should complain if they don't receive that, and teachers really not delivering what they're meant to do. And I think this unhealthy relationship, and if you would think about education, actually, you know, as part of this markets, you know, if, if you would treat it literally like a private good, we don't go into... Um, you know, into a shop and think that the whoever is selling us something is our enemy. So it's a kind of interesting dynamic that we have in education, which is very much drives that kind of positional attitude that is not even actually part of the, the overall market relations as they play out in the ideal private sector. Um, so it's interesting in itself and, and in higher education particularly, um, because legally students are consumers of higher education based on consumer protection law. Within that legal framework, there is very much emphasis on complaint, that students should be complaining if they don't receive 
uh, what they were promised. And that's an interesting aspect that we're very much focused on complaints and very much focused on um, students being, or parents also being very vocal of if they feel that whatever education was supposed to deliver, whatever schools or universities promised, that they would be vocal about that. We don't say that when we go on in our day-to-day life in kind of shopping and so on, that you should constantly be really vocal and complain. There's an interesting dynamic, which I think is quite unique about marketization of education. That's true. As soon as you see a complaints box, (laughs) as it were, metaphorically or really or whatever, a a complaints procedure, there's an assumption that there's something to complain about. And alongside the marketization of schools and marketization of public services, or indeed the privatization of many things that were provided by public services, that were nationalised services, came an institutionalised form of complaints box in Ofsted and Ofqual and the various offices of oversight, which institutionalised an idea that things needed to be looked at, watched, monitored, surveilled for their potential failure. And in the terms of education, Ofsted beefed up its sense of assertive, Um, labelling of schools as failing or succeeding according to quite harsh boundaries. In other words, if you're going to judge schools that assertively, it's because there's a suspicion that they need to be judged that assertively. There is something to be watched out for, something to be inspected, something to be found out. And and also, if that fits into a sense in which students want to, to trust their outcomes, you know, I, I'm here to, to th- th- you're going to deliver this and I want I want this kind of grade at the end of it um, because I know the importance of that. This is a marketplace out there. And I, I hope I haven't said it to students, but it's, been, it's tempting, isn't it, to say things like, well, you're going to need this to get a good job one day. Always think of the future. This is this is a process in which you're um, you're involved in uh, securing something to be achieved later on. And that's, that's what changes our understandings of education and that I do think that when we speak about marketization of education and changing the purpose of education, the one element that feeds into it is not only how schools and universities operate, but it's also how we think about education as something that can be consumed and something that leads to instrumental values. In a way of true education, we increase our own human capital value, which then should help us to get a better job, better paid job and so on. So this idea of what does education need to deliver and the promises we make, which I also worry that the the kind of the increasingly insecure economic order or economic world we live in are often also unachievable in a way. And we forget that education is also preparing young people for kind of insecure futures and being resilient and so on and being creative and coming up with their own alternative futures and so on. Um, So I do worry about this kind of quite instrumental focus on graduate jobs and and good jobs. Is it possible? I mean, (laughs) I wonder that that neoliberalism, that a market-driven society has to produce insecurity and has to produce a sense of dissatisfaction. The satisfied consumer doesn't consume as much. You know, you have to want more. So there has to be a sort of built-in obsolescence to the to the to the things you're gaining, the things you're in doing. So there always has to be a sense of insecurity. So the fact uh, it's an economic system, uh, an ideological system that manufactures insecurity uh, and a degree of a degree of fear. I absolutely agree. 
yeah, you put it so well. I absolutely agree, and and it's the same principle of that's you know that we need unemployment to keep the labor market operating as efficiently as possible. So I think it's the same idea of that. There always needs to be winners and losers because otherwise the quality wouldn't improve or so on. So I think this idea of that we need insecurity, we need people to fear that they're losing something in order them to try for more and better and so on. So I think we do live in this kind of world where the, we we emphasize the survival mm. of the fittest. And and um, students are, well, it's not students, all people really, are constantly aware of that uh, that life you're not living. <laughs> if, you, if you care to observe it too much, you know, the, the young, the, 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 the um, the, 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 what's the word? influencer, the influencer who is always younger and filtered and beautiful and so on, or the world of which of, of consumer happiness, which is always slightly deferred for you, for the for most people, it's going to be that's going to be around the corner, but never never fully attained. It's some sort of carrot, or carrot and stick, yeah. or carrot. Yeah, and that now relates to the wider technological advancement. So it's not just the ways in which we kind of organize our own kind of political and economic world, but it's also how the technology feeds into that and how we're all connected to much more information and, and much more visible in terms of our own everyday um, life and so on. And I have an interesting project at the moment where I look into how students, um, UK-based university students, become influencers on social media platforms such as TikTok and Instagram and so on. So I'm talking to people and, 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 and thinking about the ways in which that world operates and how those students have influence over future students because there's quite a lot of following from A-level students and so on who are making their decisions about which universities to go. And often they don't come to universities to look at their fancy brochures and so on. They go and watch things on YouTube or TikTok and get the information from there, from somebody who is in a particular place and so on. So I think we do have that culture of where do we get information and who do we compare ourselves with? which I think is interesting and often probably beyond how we even imagine things work um, because I, I do think that the change is quite rapid and particularly accelerated by technological change. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, the, and the, um, that, that, that sense of, of there being some, some other that you, you aspire to. Well, you'd, you'd hope, wouldn't you, that... that because uh, teachers are sort of aware of this and not aware of this. So, so in class, you'll teach students about being um, savvy with the internet. Remember all the dangers of the internet. Remember what, what's remember they can't always trust things. Those those influences aren't really necessarily looked that way and so on. So you try to teach that thing, but but the school itself and its processes are part of the uh, as we said before the the ideology of the school. I mean to be you know to be a bit sort of. Or Jewish about this, you know, cultural capital and so on. That, that, that if you're within a system that says, oh, I'll give you an example of this. I just thought it was, I was at a school a few years ago, and we they, they were worried about numbers, <laughs> numbers of students bums on seats. So they said, well, we need to rebrand the school. Rebrand? Okay, that's very interesting. We need to rebrand the school. So we're going to have a logo. I mean, you're not read Naomi Klein, no logo. Never mind. We're going to have a logo. And we're going to put above all over the school these three words appeared. They, they went on above classroom doors. As students came in the school, there were three. So we're going to have strap line. That's strap line. So there was independence, excellence, and opportunity. I thought that was, they all sound very benign. They sound nice. I love the independence. But it, it, think about that for a second. Independence, excellence, opportunity. That's all about being 
individual take responsibility, elbow the other side, seize the moment, be best. You can't all be best, so some of you are going to win, some of you are going to lose. But it's really quite unpleasant. And yet, school, so schools aren't the haven of freedom and security and childhood. Completely agree that I do think the places, you know, places like schools and, and other educational kind of institutions, are, um, all those places that, you know, they should be much more stimulating and happy places. But I think sadly, increasingly, we see that they're quite unhappy places and unhappy, you know, even for children and teachers and in that sense that it seems like everybody kind of struggles within within those contexts. And I think that sounds like a good place to have a break. We'll explore these ideas after the Teachers Talk Radio News. You're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs and my guest Rilla Rapa, Dr. Rilla Rapa, who is from Durham University and we are discussing the context in which schools operate, particularly the context of marketization and neoliberalism. We'll be back shortly. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes EDAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. Adapt. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio. And this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Rack remains the top education story across many media outlets, with the BBC focusing on the impact the issue is having on universities across the UK. The news website refers to closures of lecture theatres, science labs and student unions. So far, 14 universities have told the BBC that they have closed or partially closed areas containing the reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete. Some lectures have had to be relocated and a small number of universities have had to find alternative accommodation for students, as halls of residence have also been affected. This has placed additional pressures on universities already facing housing shortages with charity Unipol suggesting that student housing shortages are going to get worse in some cities. Student numbers are growing but the number of new rooms is tumbling. This is largely due to high building costs, older buildings falling into disrepair and now rack concerns are adding to the issue. Last week the DfE published the list of 147 schools in England built using the concrete. Six unions have now written to Education Secretary Gillian Keegan asking a series of urgent questions. The BBC says that Essex is the county in England with the most affected schools, with 25 closed, partly closed or making alternative arrangements. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has dismissed suggestions that he was at fault for the concrete crisis. 
During Prime Minister's question time, he said his government had acted decisively, whilst opposition leader Sakir Starmer referred to him as Captain Hindsight. In Wales, only two schools have so far been affected by RAC, but First Minister Mark Drakeford said inspections were ongoing. In Scotland, Humza Youssef has outlined his plans for the coming year, with a heavy focus on expanding childcare provision, saying it is the best way to support families. This plan includes the recruitment of a thousand more childminders by 2026. Free childcare hours are being extended to two-year-olds across the country. There will be a pilot of expanded care from nine months to the end of primary in six local authority areas, and free school meals for P6 and P7 pupils moves forward. But those in receipt of the Scottish Child Payment will receive them first by 2024, with others following by 2026. Last week, Mr Yusuf also commented on the issue of banning single-use vapes and linked this to the comments made about young people using vapes too often. He stated that the government will consult on curbing the sale of disposable single-use vapes, including consulting on an outright ban. According to The Guardian, South Korean teachers have staged walkouts over harassment by parents and students. Thousands of staff attended a rally in Seoul demanding better protection after a number of teacher suicides. Teachers are being increasingly vocal about their experiences of maltreatment, including being accused of child abuse after disciplining students. Around 15,000 teachers attended a rally last week and some schools had to temporarily close due to a lack of staff. As of June 2023, 100 school teachers had died by suicide in the country since 2018. The current Education Ministry blamed the current situation on previous governments, saying that they had overemphasised students' human rights over teachers' rights. Finally, The Guardian also reports that a city in Japan is tackling a rise in truancy with the help of robots. Two schools in Kumamoto have purchased mechanical assistance to help children regain confidence in dealing with teachers and their peers. It is hoped the robots will encourage children to attend classes remotely and eventually coax them back in person. The robots will be equipped with microphones, speakers and cameras. Students learning remotely will be connected to the robots via laptops, allowing them to attend and take part in discussions. The robots will not be confined to classrooms, but be free to roam so pupils can take part in other events and enjoy social times remotely too. Japan, like many countries, including the UK, is facing a rise in the number of pupils refusing to go to school since the pandemic. Could robots be the key to improvement? This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week we've all returned to work and I'm going to discuss the old argument of digital or paper diary. For every argument for going digital, there's a counter argument for not, and vice versa. You can access a digital diary from anywhere, on any device, but if you don't have a signal, it's useless. A paper diary can't get hacked, but it can be picked up and read if left lying around. You get the point. I personally like a digital diary as it suits the way I work. I can add links to online meetings, add notes and attached documents. I can see my day, week, 
month, year at the click of a button. And the most useful thing for me is I get reminder notifications. One thing to consider if moving digital this year is policies on phones in your school, as this is the most likely way you'll access it on the move. And probably most importantly, if you're using your phone, will you be able to resist the notifications from other apps or emails you see when you switch it on to use it? Cost doesn't really apply as a factor because you probably already have a phone capable of running a digital diary. But work-life balance may need to be considered as the diary is there 24-7. This can, however, be remedied by using do not disturb settings for notifications. In the end, it's a personal choice. Are you paper or digital? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. my guest this week, Dr. Rilla Rapa from Durham University, and we're discussing the kind of ideological context, almost the invisible curriculum of schools, which teaches students and teachers, and indeed the broader society, that we live in a market, a market of ideas, a market of schools, a market of success, and that corporatization of schools is something we increasingly see. And I was proposing, in a way, that although we live in a society I doubt where freedom and choice has been more highly prized and yet I don't think this freedom and choice which you'd think it would do would induces a concurrent sense of of liberation I think students today feel themselves more on tram lines more directed and more under pressure to succeed than possibly I did at school I know most of my friends who went off to do apprenticeships and they knew they were going to do those apprenticeships when they were 13, 14 years old. There wasn't much there of a sense of failure or success. School was something of childhood. Is that true in higher education? Is the, the kind of um, golden, uh, the dreaming spires of higher education, have they been infected by this sense of <coughs> competitiveness and marketization? Are, school, are, are universities happy places or unhappy places? I do increasingly see people struggling. Um, maybe it's too strong, uh, maybe unhappy is too strong words, but I do see people being stressed and struggling. They're struggling often with the workload, both colleagues who you know have increasing number of students to teach and, and so on, but also students who feel that they have increasing targets to meet. Uh, because now these days it's not just enough to be a good student it's not enough to do all your reading and write your essays and and do the exams but you also have to think about what else should you be doing while you're in the university to have actually a good uh, future trajectory so it's never enough and i think this feeling that we all feel that it's never enough and you should always be thinking about doing more and better uh, is what puts pressure on people. So I think we cannot, and we, and I often think about that we struggle to live in the present. That we often need to think about the future. So we're so we're worried about future while not being able to enjoy the present. Um, so I think that's what I notice. And I think unhappiness creeps in in those situations where you feel um, over a long period of time being um, quite pressured and 
and and and stressed and and worried about what your future will look like and then i think to a certain extent it's then infectious if you see everybody else being kind of stressed and worried about things you kind of go along with that as well even if you your kind of outlook was perhaps more positive or you had other interests and so on so yes i do feel that there is this shift and also i think partially it's to do with the language we use you mentioned those words in kind of school rebranding their kind of vision or whatever it is i do think language really matters somebody who does does quite a lot of discourse analysis i think we need to be careful of what language we use because we start buying into it if you call students consumers all of the time which we see happens at the policy level and at institutional levels these days because students are legally consumers you start buying into this logic or if you're constantly telling that you know you have to aim for this we start believing that this is the truth it's the same if you would which we which i'm sure all the listeners agree with that you know we can't call somebody you know not doing well because they they would start believing that they that they really can't achieve so we know the effects of our own language but it's also related to ways in which we speak the kind of market language in our own educational sphere which i think is quite damaging and i myself kind of have started to think about as well that you know um, words like metrics and targets and things like that that i never used to use but now it's kind of common language because these are in all the forms we have to fill in um, things like that so i think we need to be so more reflective of of our own role within enacting that culture that actually produces stress and unhappiness, I guess. Yes, you soon find yourself drawn into it as an instrument of that. I remember during particularly mad periods when we're, when people are worried about Ofsted in schools, saying, well, every, every class you must have on the board, with other schools adopted this, this must be the correct, just the craziness, where they would write in the corner, all of, by the end of this lesson, you'd have to say, we've got to do this for Ofsted, Ofsted, we've got to do this. You type every every student will uh, will have learned this. Some of you though will have learned this, and a few of you will have learned it. I thought that's terrible. That's awful, awful idea. That, that a few of you will get the thing in, in its completeness, but most of you are just ordinary. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. it's uh, it's absolute madness in a way of thinking about how we then buy into it. Um, yeah, and I think that's the kind of the the art of kind of finding ways of pockets of freedom and pockets of resistance, um, and that's what I've discussed. That I've had a kind of privilege to work with some teachers as part of the courses that I teach in the university, and often what I learn from them is the kind of the art of reading the policy or art of way, ways of finding the maneuver within the the field. Because ultimately, you know, if somebody would say that you you don't like neoliberal logic neoliberal logic in schools or universities and so on that why don't you just quit and obviously people are doing that sadly at increasing rate but not most of us wouldn't be able to just you know quit our jobs and 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 do what so what are the other forms of resistance and other forms of ethical practice that we can do without basically taking those drastic decisions and i think people are quite creative in terms of how to try to create those meaningful uh, practices within their day-to-day life, whether it's kind of interpreting policies slightly from a slightly more meaningful lens and seeing what is the flexibility within the uh, within the rules, or introducing a little initiative that does not contradict what we're meant to do, but actually makes quite a big difference. 
um, for the children or, or, or for the older um, students and so on. So I think there are ways in which we need to think about our own opportunities, um, which obviously I'm not trying to justify that what goes in the big picture is by any means right and, and we are responsible of changing it. But but keeping our own sanity through our own day-to-day practice, I think, is, is incredibly important. Yes, I think a lot of teachers clearly also find themselves trying to mitigate or act as an intermediary between the dominant ideology, the competitive nature. Everything must be about success. And the human people, the human pupils, students they have before them. So they, so you find yourself saying things like, well, you're more than grades or don't worry about the exams and it'll be fine in the end. But everything around them, the context of the society, as you say that, they can see the, f- the falseness of what you're saying. That there's a, someone standing behind you with a loud hailer that's shouting, no, that's not true at all. Actually, the grades are important. And much of your life depends on the next few months. And again, whether it doesn't really matter whether it's true. That is the overwhelmingly loud message. So your reassuring message is to some extent drowned out. And it's something we've created. If you turn students and parents into consumers and customers, then not only, as we said earlier, will they be more likely to view the thing they consume with a more critical eye, and more more complaining eye if they don't feel they're getting value for money, they'll also uh, view it, it, they'll also construct and find highly disruptive means and strategies uh, for subverting the system. And middle class parents who move their kids, who move the house to get their kids to a certain school or move their, their address to their relatives to get the kids into a certain school or help their kids with tutors or their relatives help them with their coursework or kids themselves who identify very precisely, is this in the exam? Isn't this in the exam? What exactly are we talking about here? How do I play this game? If it's a game, then I'll learn the rules. Well, human beings are very good at that, at learning the rules if they're placed within a competitive game and a way of, well, a way of fixing the dice if possible. These, so these resistant practices will be adopted by parents and teachers and so on. I think it's not unusual for teachers to look very carefully at how they can help or how they can uh, fix or how they can manipulate ways uh, within, within the rules of the game. It's, very, it's a great shame, really. Even within the most stressful situations and speaking about students, you know, being stressed and anxious about assessments and so on, they have quite a lot of agency and increasingly so. And I think some of them are very good at finding those ways of either using those new rights that they have and those kinds of that. Yes, you should be saying if you think that something is wrong or your your personal rights have not been met and they're becoming quite vocal. And some of them are, I think, quite skillfully using those rights also for greater good. And actually calling out some of the practices perhaps that, you know, um, shouldn't shouldn't be happening and so on and, and finding their voice. And I do think that there's increasing work on student voice and so on and how, how young people feel dissatisfied what goes on in the world as well and, and trying to kind of influence some of their own futures and so on. So in that sense, while I started this work with quite a pessimistic you know, uh, worldview and thinking about there is no future for any of us here and let's just try to survive. I'm, I don't know whether it's my own survival mechanism, but I'm becoming increasingly optimistic and wanting to trust 
that there will be some form of change. And if it doesn't come through the, you know, the generation currently in, in position of power, that maybe it's the next generation. And, and maybe it's the, the young people that we work with that actually will, will eventually see that this is not sustainable and we actually need to pause and stop and, and thinking about more kind of collective ways of, of living, I guess. Because I think ultimately it's not in a situation where we speak about the survival of the fittest. I have a feeling that there are actually no winners in the in the long term because everybody, even if you are a winner, it's still never enough. So, so in in a way that where do we go from here? So, so I do think that people either will start kind of withdrawing from this this game, which seems to be quite brutal, and finding kind of more ethical and 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 better ways of living. So that's what I kind of try to put my trust or hope into it. Yeah, I, I, I think the key word there was sustainable. Just before we come to that, though, just I don't remember another anecdote. I've probably told this. Apologies, listeners. This is another one of those stories which I, from, drawn from the, the Gibbs career. Well, I remember uh, an outside speaker coming into the school and he was from a bank. And they'd, you get sometimes contacts from big corporations. And this was a, he was the head of, of uh, economic, economic advisors. He turned, you could tell he was important because he turned up with two people with him whose job was to just open doors for him and, and sit, make sure his diary was being connected. So then, anyway, he turned up and he spoke to the sixth formers and he spoke to the economics, the politics, the history sorts of students. And he said, well, he said, you are, he said, the winners. You've won. <laughs> the world is the world is going to be a great place for you, he said. Uh, and he, t- he described how they would, they would live beyond the bounds of normal uh, other people. They would travel around the world and they would have lots of opportunities for them and they would be have creative lives. And then he, by an offhand, he said, well, of course, he said, it's very bad. Econo- the way the economic, the way the economy is changing, it's going to be very bad for students who leave school with few qualifications. And I thought, well, that's very bad news for the winners as well. If there's a people out there who are going to leave, who are not going to win, we're all going to lose. This is just a recipe for all of us losing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So there are those contradictions within the system as uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that kind of you know yeah, the there will be some change because I think we all are quite um, you know un, under that enormous pressure. Because I remember, and that's probably quite anecdotal as well, that when I started working at the UK universities, I, my one of my roles was to run open days and to kind of welcome the future applicants and so on and tell them about what it's like to be in the university and so on and naively because I'm coming from Estonia with, with, with a very kind of a different cultural understandings of education and parents role in education when I was doing those open uh, open days here my first impression was that wow so many mature learners that wow that's how great it is that we get to work with such a diverse group of students and then I realized soon that these were parents who are accompanying their children on open days advising them on where to apply and so on so my realization was that oh this is what the world is like here that that actually and when we speak about when we spoke about consumerism and who is the consumer i often question that i ask that question as well is that the student who is going through this whole process and obviously legally they have the consumer rights but what is the parents role because it does seem that we are not just dealing with isolated individuals coming to university but the whole family especially if it, if, it, if a family has resources is involved in this decision making process and i do think speaking about where from here is that is it sustainable that everybody is so worried about the future of um, of young people or are we starting making those decisions that there could be many different futures 
and there could be different ways in which you kind of get into the same destination that it's not that we all need to go to university straight after school and so on um, so I do wonder whether people will start thinking about um, more creative ways of, of living the life we have that that uh, as I said earlier that, that phrase that, that word sustainable I mean it doesn't just apply to sort of energy and consumption environment but it sort of does it, it it's it's looking at a world as you say that whether it started in 1979 at the end of the 20th century, whether it started with the Enlightenment and some or the first bit of industrial revolution, something is you, you get a feeling, and I, I, I think I agree, of things sort of coming to an end. There's some sort of tremendously selfish rather party <laughs> that's been going on these last centuries, and it's sort of coming to an end, and it's causing a reevaluation. I mean, we mentioned lockdown. And little moments of insight, you know, during the lockdowns and during the algorithms that were imposed on schools. Stu- people who said, well, these algorithms are unfair. You know, they, they favour private schools. I thought, have you been living in our society? <laughs> have you been alive the last ever? <laughs> Favouring private schools and unfairness is what it does. You know, it's what our system does. So there was there are moments of awareness and and maybe... Hopefully, but you mentioned Estonia. Um, I interviewed someone from who done some work on schools in Finland. You, you sort of you don't have to do it this way. Is one of the other messages. Mm. Just because the British do it this way, don't you have to do it this way? What lessons yeah. can we learn from other countries? Well, I do think that we need to be open at looking at how other places do, and and obviously being wary that we cannot just easily pour our policy solutions and think that they will work in our setting and so on. So so being aware of those cult- cultural traditions, obviously in Estonia, we're very good at borrowing from Finland and neighbouring countries. So, so in that sense, there is a history of that. Um, yes, I mean, I suppose interesting things with some of the other countries is that, yes, they do very well at PISA tests and so on. Again, metrics and so um, so does my own country. But does, does this, is this the reflection of success in that sense? Are children at school happy? Are teachers happy of what they're doing? Does that mean that we don't have educational inequalities in terms of schools that children can go to? No. And, and, and that's an interesting phenomenon in itself, that how do we, what do we set as the measures of success? And I do think that, uh, you know, many of the countries that we look at as doing better better work or, or, or being good examples that actually struggle on their own with their own issues as well. So so I do so I'm quite critical in terms of thinking about how do we look at other ways of doing um, and who could we look at? Who who is getting it right in this moment of time? And I'm not sure actually I know an answer to it. Um, so yeah. What things going on in your observation of higher education Give you a moment of pause for thinking. Well, that's that's a that's a move away from this trend. You know, every if everything's been flowing in the direction of markets and consumerism and the and the discourse of the, the market and the individual, the the self the self sustaining individual. What, have you seen any evidence that hey, maybe that maybe that we're looking we're thinking differently? Well, I've seen loads of people doing very good things. So I think at the individual level, there is quite a lot of, um, you know, kind of new innovative um, 
teaching methods and, and curricular changes and so on. Sadly, however, and possibly I'm contradicting here myself, that thinking even back to pandemic, when we thought that, you know, what is the, the most disruptive events that, you know, I've had in my lifetime? This was obviously the pandemic. And also the most disruptive event to universities as, as you know, for a very long time. And what did it change? It didn't really change that much in a sense of uh, thinking about, uh, how does material crisis play out in our universities? So I guess my short answer to your question would be that um, I don't see any big changes happening at this moment of time that would move us away from further marketization of higher education or consumer approaches to students. That I see at the moment this is kind of you know the reality we live in. Question is whether it's sustainable. I think the question, the, the sustainability question is interesting because I do think that it's probably not sustainable. And that's what we um, currently see with the marking and assessment boycott that both sides uh, are one thing that everybody can agree with is that the sector is not really functioning properly and and is not sustainable in terms of how, you know, in terms of people's working conditions, but also from the employer side in terms of how higher education has been funded and so on. So we see that there are quite a lot of kind of those material crises probably, you know, bubbling up under the surface, which has obviously been experience of many for a long time. So I do wonder how we move on from there. I think currently we probably carry on as, as usual in a way that people trying to do the best they can for students and and students trying to do the best they can for their own futures and so on. But I do hope that uh, what I would like to see is trying to kind of move away from this incredible individual competitiveness where we have to kind of work in isolated ways and students themselves are thinking about as isolated, you know, learners and so on. And coming back to university as a kind of place of, of some form of collective learning as well, in a way where we could prioritise things beyond grades and, and assessments as we started this conversation with. So that's what I would hope to see. And I do wonder whether people will have increasing need for it, because it's kind of quite sad and and uh, an unhappy world to constantly be just in your own company, thinking about your own needs and interests in a way that I do wonder whether we, we have some form of coming together um, as, a, as part of that kind of survival strategy in that sense. Yes. Well, I mean, th there is hope, of course, in the fact that if, I, if you look at uh, your list of researchers, as you rightly said, you know, um, it may be that, uh, that universities and schools are a marketplace and so on. But clearly, you're able to research and discuss and explore these ideas, which, <laughs> which, um, which, 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 there was still the freedom to do that, and that that's that's that that's cause for hope. I mean, all the... yeah. And also, I think that if I could be a student again, if I could go to university at this moment of time, this is like incredible choice. I mean, I don't want to use choice, the market yes. choice here but choice, it's an incredible choice of picking whatever you want to learn and there's so exciting things that you could actually study that are very stimulating you know changing your worldview and so on so in that sense the the knowledge base that we engage in you know on, at least in higher education is enormous and it's quite exciting um so i so i do think that there are kind of good things within what we 
Oh, and yeah. and and the the sheer the delight of learning and so on. I mean, it's still there. It's still there in those classrooms. I did experience that in schools for most of the time, to be honest. Now, although I've said schools are horrible places, I think generally speaking that's true. <laughs> but but within within that, nice things happen. And uh, I remember taking my my daughters are now through university, and they and I did the whole parent thing. I was I was that parent sitting there next to them saying, you know, and uh, a lot of the time I was thinking, oh, I wish I could study this. This is brilliant. And, and, and also at the other time, trying to filter some of the, I remember going to a lecture at, at um, Birmingham University. She didn't, she didn't go to Birmingham University. This, this guy did this whizzy lecture. I thought, wow, this is so funny. And it's so clever. It's so good. And she they said, oh, that is great. Wasn't he tremendous, that bloke? I said, well, yeah, they're not all, it probably isn't, he probably isn't like that all the time. <laughs> that, yeah. that, that, that was a bit of marketing. Really. Yeah, yeah. And I do believe that if, if only we could invent a time machine that would allow us to see the future, and if future looks yes. all right, I think people would enjoy the present so much more. I think that's the idea of that we constantly, or young people needing to worry about what will happen to them in the future. Yeah. If they knew that they would be okay, they would actually enjoy the school, they would enjoy um, you know whatever they're studying much more. Um, because I think it's this kind of the constant need to be prepared for whatever will happen in the future is what brings us down to this constant anxiety of some sort oh yeah what all the all the other things you've got to yeah. worry about when you're young now yeah. now the future yeah. you're in fact yeah. that you know that, that terrible phrase oh the I, you, you, this has messed up my life i mean, i heard some students talking about that the other day in relation to some exam system or the school change this this is this could ruin my life no that's the one thing it couldn't do it couldn't ruin your life it could be very inconvenient that that uh, you said the time machine idea. What would the thing you'd most like to do if you could go back in time and blunder out the time machine and see your young self? You'd say something like, "Don't worry, <laughs> you know, it, it works. It works out." You know, I mean, I, I just retired and I'm thoroughly enjoying retirement. That's never encouraging. I say that to people. I say, oh, "You're going to love retirement." They give me a very blank look. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, if I could, if I could retire, I would retire today and do all the fun things, you know, learn for for its own sake. But going back, if there would be a time machine going back, I think because I was one of those, you know, I think I really sympathise today's young people because I was one of those who really was obsessed with grades and really mm. thought that the grades will dictate my future. And I didn't even have the best grades. Uh, when I got to university, I don't think so. But uh, but this idea, if, I, if only I could take this pressure off from myself, because none of those grades matter by the end of the day in terms of they don't indicate your ability. Yes, there's some form of sorting mechanism that you have to meet a certain threshold at certain, um, certain stages. But every single mark that you get, uh, it really is not going to change your life. And I think if I could take that pressure off from myself, uh, then I think I would have been much happier yeah. uh, growing up, in, in a sense. Um, so yes, so that's what I would change. I would have a bit more relaxed outlook to life. I think. Absolutely, and I, I, fe I fear yeah. that schools have. Ah, yeah. uh, we talked about the the market society neoliberalism as necessary producer of dissatisfaction. Wasn't schools are in there as well? I think a lot a lot of people leave school with a sense of what they can't do. As much as what they can do, you know. But at what point did you learn you couldn't draw? <laughs> at what point did you learn that poetry was really rather difficult because you had to learn sorts of technical ways of understanding poetry? You couldn't just enjoy it, and so on. So school is often a series of ruling outs of things that you might have otherwise enjoyed. So that's what I think exactly, exactly. Are. And I have certainly a trauma from school from early 
early years of not being able to sing. And I've only living here, I've realized that actually all children can sing. It's not that you, you should be told when you're seven that no, you cannot sing and please don't ever sing. Um, but I realized that ah, actually, I think as a child, I certainly could have, you know, I should have been singing and like all children. So I, so I think those traumas that we take with us thinking that this is not what I can do and, and this is what I shouldn't be ever trying to do um, stays with us. And I do think that some of the things I see at school today and here especially are much more kind of child-centered when it comes to artistic and musical abilities and how do we <laughs> judge who is good enough or, or not. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the, the days of um, when I, I can remember in the, in the 1960s and 70s, uh, when teachers routinely hit students and were really quite unpleasant and the dunces cap and stand in the corner and humiliation, all that's gone. Thank goodness. I mean, that, that is gone. <laughs> uh, so, so the world does, the world does improve. Sometimes you have to remind yourself of that. Although that, it is said that the, one of the, you know, commonest dreams that people have, they can fly and then suddenly they can't fly or they're walking around in public with no clothes on. The other dream is they're in an exam room and somehow they haven't prepared. If there's anyone out there who hasn't had that dream, you're in the exam room. Yeah, well, I didn't know. It's uh, you know that legacy of anxiety and fear. Yeah, I, yeah. I, it I, lives in our... You know, if I I would personally, in my my lesson of my teaching, looking back on my career, is I would end exams. <laughs> I would or have very very few. I'd get lots of other things I'd do as well, but I would end. I would not have that. I would have most people finishing school with a certificate of completion, like a certificate of you can drive. Some of you are going to be good drivers, some not good drivers, but you can drive. You've finished school and you attended. It's enough for you. And uh, people listening to this probably think I'm completely bonkers, but uh, that is what I would do. What, What would you do? First of all, I would absolutely vote for this. I would vote for it, for this and support getting rid of, rid of all of those kind of differentiated assessments and things like that. What I would do, I would do, I would get rid of um, treating students as consumers because I, I don't think the same logic that applies to buying shoes or handbags can ever apply to education. I know that people do, you know, bring up metaphors that if we, if we bring that consumer idea into higher education, it's not really uh, about buying shoes, but it's buying the gym membership, that you get a membership and you have a fee, but you have to do all the hard work to get fit. But even that analogy, I don't think really works in higher education. I would really want teachers to be teachers and students to be learners and us as an educational community that's doing something really good together that actually gives us kind of prospects for brighter future. So that's what I would want to, to see as a change, I think. And that's a good, idealistic, positive note and I must one I very much agree with to end on. Thank you so much for being a great guest this week, Rilla Rapa from Durham University. I've enjoyed our discussion and I think you can't talk about these things enough. Thank you. And that brings to an end another episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs as I continue my quest to understand what a teaching career was for. This week, my guest, Rilla Rapa, Associate Professor and Deputy Director of Research in the Department of Education at Durham University. We discussed the wallpaper of our society that stands behind schools neoliberalism, marketization, and the idea that schools are in some way in competition with other schools 
and students are consumers. How long that can go on, we'll have to find out. Hopefully, we will. And if you've enjoyed our discussion, you can hear it again. Or if you missed it, well, you won't be hearing this, will you? But it can be found on Spotify and multiple other platforms. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.